Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 24. Welcome back. Please follow me on Twitter and on my Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. This episode will deal with a famous proclamation that Hegel made in the preface to his Phenomenology of Spirit, and that is that substance is subject. This is truly a foundational concept for Hegel and for Hegelianism. We often discuss this in the Hegel study group on Facebook, and there's been so much written on this important concept of, of his. As a matter of fact, contemporary Slovene philosopher Maladin Delar has an interesting comment on this from an article he wrote on Hegel and Freud. And I quote, Hegel proposed the fundamental adage that everything depends on a single statement, namely, that the true is not to be comprehended only as substance, but equally as a subject. In brief, substance is subject, end quote. Now, this is a very powerful statement. Delar not only says that it's fundamental, this concept, but that uh, everything depends on the single statement, that truth depends on this. Um, that the true is not to be comprehended only as a substance, but equally as a subject. In brief, substance is subject. So let's delve into this. First, as good philosophers, we should define our terms a bit. Let's start with substance. What do we mean by substance? Well, in philosophy, substance is looked at in general as um, the ground of being, what things are made up of. Um, it's what underlies all and everything. The actual word originates from the Greek word usia, meaning being. And this is translated into Latin as substantia, the first material, and then into our English word substance. It is something that stands under or grounds things. That's what the word means. Now, the early pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, the first philosophers, if you will, spend a lot of time thinking about what this first substance is. What is this ground of being? And um, they thought, uh, they questioned what was this, uh, this substance that everything else is made of. Uh, they thought that was an important thing to consider. So let's go through some of the main original theories of these pre-Socratic Greek philosophers. And I'm not going to go into any detail here. I'm just going to cover their main conclusions. And I would encourage you to, to search some of these out because it's pretty fascinating. First, Thales, he thought the primary substance was water. Um, Anaximenes thought that the base element was air. Empedocles proposed four core elements, uh, the famous earth, water, air, and fire. Anaximander thought the basic element was indeterminate. It, it could not be determined, but it, whatever it was, it could transmit itself into these, these four elements. Pythagoras believed numbers uh, to underlie all reality. And Democritus postulated that atoms were at the core of everything. And this was really the first atomic theory, if you will, by uh, put forth by Democritus. And in between the atoms, there was an empty space, a void. And this empty space allows the atoms to move, and that they needed to move to make things. Um, they needed to bang together and change the form of things. Now, there was um, 
Another Greek philosopher, um, Lucretius, and he built on this theory, on, on Democritus's theory of, of atoms. And he, was, he lived around the first century BCE. And he provided a detailed theory on how this void was absolutely necessary for movements. He sort of took Democritus's theory and built on it. And he explained how gases and liquids can flow and change shapes and how material forms come to be. Now, importantly, he used a term, klinamen, which means inclination, to describe a certain swerve that atoms undergo. And this is important. And let me quote directly from Lucretius from his, his work called On the Nature of Things. I quote, When atoms move straight down through the void by their own weight, they deflect a bit in space at a quite uncertain time and in uncertain places, just enough that you could say that their motion is changed. But if they were not in the habit of swerving, they might all fall straight down through the depths of the void like drops of rain, and no collision would occur, nor would any blow be produced among the atoms. In that case, nature would never have produced anything, end quote. He believed the swerve is the basis for, and I quote him, free will, which living things throughout the world have, end quote. This is a, a very interesting um, observation. Now, the, the book that Lucretius wrote on the nature of things, it, it, there's an interesting story behind this. It was almost lost to history forever. And a book was written about how it was found, and that book is entitled The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. It was written by Stephen Greenblatt and published in 2012. It actually won a Pulitzer Prize in the National Book Award for nonfiction when it came out. It tells a very fascinating story of one Paggio Broccolini, and he was a Vatican book collector in the 15th century. And he stumbled upon the last remaining copy of Lucretius's work on the nature of things. And it was actually unknown at the time there, there was even such a thing, a, a book remaining. He found it in a German monastery somewhere, and it was suffering from neglect and probably would have resulted in, in the dustbin of history. But he found it, and he thus reintroduced Lucretius's important ideas from this book. Greenblatt also goes on to say that the, it was this book that sparked the modern age, the Renaissance. Now, there's some debate about whether, whether that, in fact, is true. But anyway, it's an interesting book. If you, if you want to check it out, it's called The Swerve by Greenblatt. However, there's a reason I bring up all this, um, Lucretius and the atoms in the void. The void is the nothingness in which atoms move. And uh, we'll discuss this in a second in light of Hegel's notion that substance is subject. Now, I mentioned Lucretius believed that the, the swerve is the most primitive form of free will, and that it was baked into each atom. So he, he introduced at a very base level the notion of subject or self within matter. He didn't call it that, but he did, he did say that it was a, the most primitive form of, of free will. We've talked about what substance means and how to how to look at it. We're now going to talk about what what the subject means. The other part of the uh, of the statement: substance is subject. The term subject is generally thought of as a consciousness, a perceiver, a self, one who observes an object outside of it. 
It usually comes as a dichotomy, as a pair of subject-object, self and non-self. We see this in Cartesian dualism and in the mind-body problem. Most people see a split between themselves and the outside world, and this is totally natural, and um, it, it's, how, it's how we operate. However, the cornerstone of Hegelianism is that this separation, while we do perceive it, is essentially um, not the end of the story. It's, um, it's not the full story, if you will. Um, it's essentially a, a false way to look at it from a, a broader perspective. As Mladen Dolar states, the notion that substance is in fact subject is perhaps the major tenet of Hegel's philosophy. One may ask themselves, is this just fuzzy metaphysical thinking, or is there something really going on here? How can substance, actual things out there, be a self, be a subject? Well, let's get into this in terms of what Hegel means. Hegel discusses this in several key passages of the in the preface to the uh, Phenomenology of Spirit, and I'll go through some of these quotes. First, Delar is correct in that Hegel says everything depends on this fact, that the ultimate truth must be ex- expressed as both substance and subject together. I quote from the preface of the Phenomenology of Spirit, paragraph 17, quote, In my view, a view which the developed exposition of the system itself can alone justify, Everything depends on grasping and expressing the ultimate truth, not as substance, but as subject as well, end quote. Specifically, Hegel states that separating the subject from the substance, while it looks like a defect, it is actually the soul of both, substance and subject, is what moves them. I quote from paragraph 37 of the preface, quote, The dissimilarity which obtains in consciousness between the ego and the substance constituting its object is their inner distinction, the factor of negativity in general. We may regard it as the defect of both opposites, but it is their very soul, their moving spirit, end quote. This moving spirit is in fact geist, mind, and it is within both subject and object and is what makes them inseparable. Hegel notes this moving principle is in um, the early pre-Socratic writings. He says, quote, It was on this account that certain thinkers long ago took the void to be the principle of movement when they conceived the moving principle to be the negative element, though they had not yet thought of it as self. That's from paragraph 37 of the preface of the Phenomenology of Spirit. Now, this negative is the principle of movement of substance itself. And importantly, Hegel thinks that this movement of spirit is not just movement, but it has purpose. He says, paragraph 22 of the preface, Purpose is the immediate, the undisturbed, the unmoved, which is self-moving. As such, it is subject. So here he links it. This purposeful movement of substance is what he deems subject. And he goes further to link this purpose to reason. Paragraph 22 from the preface, quote, what has been said may also be expressed by saying that reason is purpose of activity, end quote. The self, the subject, is this process of substance creating the void, the negation which allows for the purposeful reasoned movement, which is becoming. This is reminiscent of the beginning of Hegel's Science of Logic, where being and nothing are sublated in becoming. 
And this was the sole topic of episode three of this podcast, if you'd like to go back and refresh your memories. Now, as long as you're thinking about substance and subject as separate, you can't see what is actually occurring in the bigger picture. Spirit produces this negation of being itself. It does this to allow for purposeful, reasoned movement. So in the substance and the void created by spirit, it is important to recognize the one commonality they share. That's the negation, the same apparent defect in both. Thought negates being, and the void negates substance. This is the key. There is not substance and void apart from each other, but substance and void together. Just like there is not being and thought separate, but being and thought together. And this void is is brought by the subject. So subject and void together are one. Substance and subject together are one. This is identity and difference. Hegel brings in Aristotle to back this up. In paragraph 22, he states, All the same, in the sense in which Aristotle, too, categorizes nature as purpose of activity, purpose is the immediate, the undisturbed, the unmoved, which is self-moving. Yet this identity and difference, as I said in the beginning, is no longer recognized in general in today's materialistic world. It's a, it's a big problem in my view. And, and Hegel concurs, I quote from paragraph 37 of the preface, the exaltation of so-called nature at the expense of thought misconceived, and more especially the rejection of eternal external purposiveness has brought the idea of purpose in general into disrepute. So he recognized that even back then, that purpose was, um, was moving into a realm of disrepute. He covers this as well in paragraph 22, quote, what is actual and concrete is the same as its inner principle or notion, simply because the immediate, qua purpose, contains within it the self or pure actuality. The realized purpose or concrete actuality is movement and development unfolded. But this very unrest is the self. End quote. Now, Hegel also refers to this um, atomistic principle in his Science of Logic. Um, I quote, The atomistic principle with these first thinkers didn't remain in exteriority, but apart from its abstraction, contained a speculative determination that the void was recognized as the source of movement. This implies a completely different relation between atoms and the void than the mere one beside the other and mutual indifference of the two. The view that the cause of movement lies in the void contains that deeper thought that the cause of becoming pertains to the negative. This is from uh, works, Hegel's Collective Works, Volume 5, page 185 to 186. This movement requires something that can be moved, a void in which it moves, and a purpose for this movement, a rational purpose. It is the void that contains the cause of becoming. Now, Hegel states that it is thought, thinking, reason in man that creates this interruption in movement, just as the void creates movement in things. This is their inner subjectivity, and this is their link. Further, he expresses this in his philosophy of history as follows, quote, This break, interruption, is the other side of atoms, the void. The movement of thought is such a movement that it has in itself the break. Thought is in man precisely what atoms and the void are in things, the inner. It's from the philosophy of history, um, works volume 19, page 311. 
Further, going back to the Phenomenology of Spirit preface, paragraph 37, I quote, what seems to take place outside it to be an activity directed against it is its own doing, its own activity, and substance shows that it is in reality subject, end quote. The void is a willful negation. It is created so there can be movement. The purposeful movement, the becoming, is one whole. Slavoj Zizek, the current philosopher and, and pretty famous author and speaker, echoes this in his book, Less Than Nothing. I quote Zizek, quote, In order to grasp the radical link between the subject and nothingness, the void, one should be very precise in reading Hegel's famous statement on substance and the subject. For the nothingness which thwarts the substance from within, destroying its unity, and thus dynamizes it, the notion best rendered by Hegel's remark, apropos the unrest of substantial unity, that the self is this very unrest. It's on page 378. Hegel identifies this power to move this unrest as the subject. He identifies it as a negation. So the self it is a process, it is not a single unity. It involves a negation, which is setting up a void in the movement within, a becoming. And this is a rational process with purpose. There is not one substance alone, but an identity and difference of subject and substance, the split in which unity is based. This is foundational and fundamental to Hegel's philosophy. Let me quote again Maladar Dolar. Quote, so thinking is the break of being, its interruption, and what thought and its objects have in common is the break that interrupts objectivity through void. Thought and world intersect in the void. It is not a question here of whether atomism is a good theory. Hegel will not endorse it in his own account of being, nor whether this is a good interpretation of atomism. The point is, though, that atomism includes a certain insight which Hegel sees as valid and far-reaching. Namely, that there is a principle of negativity which moves both thought and being, that this principle forms the inside of both at their core, and that the way in which substance and subject hang together should be pinned to this principle. Subject, as Hegel understands the sanity, is to be placed in the break, and this is what pushes each entity into unrest. The self is nothing but the unrest of one, end quote. Thought interrupts the streaming consciousness and categorizes perceptions, but it is also a moving force on its own. It is substance which has a purpose and can achieve this purpose. It separates being and then sublates being in the void with becoming. Mind is not just an epiphenomenon of matter. It is baked in right from the beginning, right from the start. It's fundamental, foundational. The universe itself has purpose and reason underlying it. This universe includes us, and we're fulfilling its purpose, if we choose to. Now, this is obviously a difficult uh, notion to understand. Our dualistic way of thinking is the reason, and it gets in the way constantly. So I, I recognize this is a difficult concept for me to comprehend. But Hegel is clear here, and hopefully the quotes that I provided help understand his, his thinking in this, in this regard that uh, a foundational concept of his philosophy is that substance is subject. They are one and the same. Interestingly, we can see this void expressed in, in modern physics of the Big Bang. We don't have to go back to this primitive atomism of Democritus or Lucretius. We can see the void in the Big Bang. Let me explain. Scientists believe that 
in the early universe, there was a, an enormous cosmic inflation within a microsecond. And although the expansion slowed, the universe is still expanding today as we speak. And what's really interesting here is by expanding, it means that space-time itself is expanding. Space is expanding. <laughs> so the question is, what is space expanding into? And that's a very good question. And scientists don't really have an answer for this. However, if Hegel is correct, it is expanding into a void. And this is the same void that Lucretius discussed, the same void Hegel is referring to. This void is the source of becoming, spirit, if you will. It is part of the process, then, part of it now, as the universe expands into the void. Hence, subject was there in the beginning of the universal expansion, and it remains now. It's a pretty heavy thought. Now, again, as I've often said in these episodes, and I'm going to say it again, it, this is not the self, the subject that we're talking about is not some separate God that's apart from the universe. It's 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 within, it's baked within the universe. It's part of it, it's fundamental. I also realize this self, this subject that we're talking about, it, it it's not exactly our own individualized consciousness and personality as we walk around every day. I'm not referring to this either. However, there is a presence of, of mind, spirit, and geist within us all. And there is an intention within the cosmos, and, and we can express that intention. There is spirit within us as well. And we can recognize this and get in touch with this, and we can fulfill it. Now, this brings me to the title of this, this episode, part of the title anyway, Hegel's Rose and the Cross. What did I mean by this? Why did I put it in the title? Well, there's a reason. Let me begin by a quote of Hegel's from the introduction to his philosophy of right. And I quote, The barrier which stands between reason as self-conscious spirit and reason as present reality and does not permit spirit to find satisfaction in reality is some abstraction which is not free to be conceived. To recognize reason as the rose in the cross of the present and to find delight in it is a rational insight which implies reconciliation with reality. This reconciliation philosophy grants to those who have felt the inward demand to conceive clearly to preserve subjective freedom while present in substantive reality, and yet thought possessing this freedom to stand not upon the particular and contingent, but upon what is self-complete, end quote. Let's break this down. Hegel first says in, in this paragraph in the first sentence, the barrier which stands between reason as self-conscious spirit and reason as present reality and does not permit spirit to find satisfaction in reality, is some abstraction, which is not free to be conceived. Here he is saying that there are two ways of thinking, basically. One is thinking as a self-conscious spirit, and one is thinking as just an observer of present reality. The self-consciousness is an evolving, purposeful self that aligns with Geist and spirit. And the other is just a rational dissection of what is occurring. There's no freedom in the latter, no ability to conceive a better way. Hegel goes on in the paragraph, in the second sentence, to recognize reason as the rose in the cross of the present and to find delight in it is a rational insight which implies reconciliation with reality, end quote. The rose is a symbol of evolving love and beauty, of evolving life. The cross here is a symbol, I believe, for the finite material world. 
Aside from its Christian connotation, the cross can be seen as a symbol of the four primal elements of earth, water, air, and fire, as we discussed earlier. And the rose symbolizes a rising above this finite world coming from within. It symbolizes life, love, and light, reason, spirit, geist. It uplifts the world. It continues in this paragraph, I quote, This reconciliation philosophy grants to those who have felt the inward demand to conceive clearly, to preserve subjective freedom while present in substantive reality, end quote. He calls it a reconciliation between subjective freedom and substantive reality. This is the complete self, the rose and the cross taken together as one actual reality and taken together in the light. Now, just finally, the rose cross itself is a symbol most associated, some of you may know this, with the Western esoteric tradition called Rosicrucianism. And Hegel was very much aware of this hermetic group and admitted borrowing the symbol from them in his philosophy of religion. Now, I talked about the Rosicrucian order in some detail in episode 7. However, it's also important to point out that the rose and the cross is not an exclusive Rosicrucian symbol. It's also used in Freemasonry, in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. It was used by Aleister Crowley and also by other mystical and esoteric organizations. So it's a powerful symbol that is around in a lot of Hermetic writings and uh, teachings. So we've covered a lot here, certainly, and it is recognized that this is a difficult concept to wrap one's mind around. But it's also important to understand that this is really a cornerstone, of a foundation of Hegelianism. And why it's so important is that it brings purpose, meaning, life, light, and love to our finite world, which we're so much in need of. So that's it for this episode. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. Please tell your friends about this podcast if you think they might find it of interest. And thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. We'll see you next time.